When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Victor Bacris to discuss the Velvet Underground. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Victor Bacris, the co-author of Uptight, The Velvet Underground Story. Victor, welcome. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk about this book forever. This is one of the first uh, rock and roll books I got in college back in the 80s. When this book came out, it was just an absolutely huge deal. I didn't know anything about The Velvet Underground it was this complete mystery and, and the book really filled in. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to co-author it with Gerard Malenga? Sure, sure. Um, I had a very good friend in London, Barry Miles, who ran a publishing company called Omnibus Books Music Sales, which, which is now a large company. It wasn't then. He suggested to me, as I met him in London one summer, to do a book. Uh, on the Velvet Underground with Gerard Malanga. Gerard Malanga was a good friend of both of ours. And so I thought that was a very good idea. I came back to New York. I talked to Gerard about it. He was happy to do it. So we agreed upon a co-authorship. And uh, basically, we we did the book uh, fairly quickly over a period of, actually took about six months. 
he collected a large number of photographs, set up various interviews for me, uh, collaborated on the text. I, I wrote most of the text, but he helped me do it. Um, and then we got a very good designer in London called Neville Brody, who was probably the hippest designer in London at that time, uh, to design the book. And I think the design made all the difference because the combination of photos and text as designed in this book to look something like an art catalog was very appropriate to the band being sort of an art band, right? And I think the book's success has a lot to do with the combination of the design, of course, and the text and the photographs. And editing by Miles, who did a good job too. Yeah, absolutely, uh, a key to that. And can you explain what Gerard's role with the Velvet Underground was and how he performed in the Exploding Plastic Inevitable with them? So the Velvet Underground was a group of four musicians uh, playing their first gig in New York at the Cafe Bazaar, I think it was, or the Cafe War, I can't remember. Um, Bazaar, yeah. Bazaar, right, yes. And uh, so Andy Warhol at the time was looking for a group because he'd been offered to run a discotheque if you could provide a group to play there. So he was looking around for a group, and, and I think Gerard discovered the Velvets and took Andy to see them. And the day, the time he took Andy to see them, they were playing the music, which is now famous. And Gerard got up and started dancing around the room to the music. And he had this whip with him, and he started using the whip as part of the dance routine. And I think Andy saw right away he could use Gerard to dance in front of the band, to visualize their songs, as it were, to mind the, the, the actions in the songs. And I think that gave him the basic idea then to put the velvets in front of his films and you know create what was called the, the exploding plastic inevitable, the touring group that Warhol put out with the velvets in uh, in '66. And let's backtrack just a little bit and talk about Lou Reed and John Cale and Sterling Morrison and, and Mo Tucker, who they were and how they got to the Cafe Bazaar in 1965, so that Andy Warhol could see them. What was Lou's musical background? Lou's musical background was he'd been playing in bands since he was 14 years old. He actually put out a record called So Blue when he was 14. And he had gone to Syracuse University and played in there, lots of bands. He played at the university. And he came down, back down to live with his parents in, in on Long Island and uh, started working at Pickwick Records, which was sort of a mass-produced uh, copy bands, doing copy albums of surf music or, or or such and such music, various different forms. And Lou was a very prolific songwriter at that point. He started writing a lot of different songs for these, these Pickwick labels. And they recognized his talent. And so basically he wrote a song called The Ostrich, which they thought could be a hit. So they wanted a band to perform the hit. They didn't actually have a band, of course. And so uh, they recruited John Cale, uh, of course, Lou Reed, and then a couple of other guys, uh, Tony Conrad and Walter De Maria, to play in the original Primitives. So when the, when the Primitives played maybe 10 times to promote the record, it didn't go anywhere, so they stopped. But after working together, they decided they wanted to continue work. So Cale and Reed wanted to continue working together because Reed had shown Cale some of the other songs he wrote, such as Heroin, Waiting for the Man, things like that. 
And so Kale became very fascinated by read songwriting. And they started sort of working these things up together where John Kale would provide these psychedelic symphonies really for lose essentially uh, folk songs he was writing. And this then, they, they met Sterling Morrison on the street one day in New York, and he had been playing with Lou at Syracuse, so they asked him to join the band. And uh, and then when they started getting some gigs, they got Maureen to join, because the original drummer um, had left the band when they went commercial. They started playing gigs, he, he left the band. And, and before we get to their big commercial sellout. Tell us a little bit more about John Cale's musical background, because he has an absolutely unique musical background yeah, for a yeah. in the 60s. John, John Cale had gone to Goldsmiths College in London, uh, classical music college, and, and, and studied avant-garde music, particularly John Cage and things like that. And he got a, he got a scholarship to Tanglewood in the United States. He came over to work at Tanglewood with Aaron Copeland. And from working at Tanglewood and beginning to do a few concerts, he actually did a concert with John Cage, which was pictured in the New York Times in 1963, I think. And uh, so, you know, he, he got sort of his hanging around and he started playing with Lamont Young's Dream Syndicate at that time. Probably the hippest band in America was Lamont Young's Dream Syndicate, um, exploring uh, one chord songs, two chord songs, drones, plagial cadence, all those different forms. And uh, so John was playing with them when he, uh, as I say, met Lou through Pickwick and came to, to join forces with Lou. So yes, John had a classical background and also an avant-garde classical background. And so he, but he was very intrigued by rock and roll, which is sort of new to him through the Pickwick experience, the primitives experience. And so when he started working with Lou on working up some of these songs Lou had written, such as I mentioned, Heroin, Waiting for the Man, and so forth, he applied to them his own sort of symphonic forms, translating uh, from his own avant-garde work as Lamont Young into something that would fit more with Lou's lyrics, which became really a kind of psychedelic symphony. So without Kale's contribution to the sound, the Velvets have been kind of an ordinary band with kind of odd, odd title songs or odd subject songs such as Heroin. But with John's contribution, it put them on it put them on a much larger stage. It put them on a, on, on a, a sort of very avant-garde approach to rock. And uh, that's how they started performing. That's how they presented themselves to the world. And let's hear our, our first song. This is one of their early collaborations from their first album. This is I'm Waiting for the Man. Velvet Underground's I'm Waiting for the Man from their first album, The Velvet Underground, and Nico. And one more thing about Lou Reed I want to cover before we go on to their career as the Velvet Underground, and that's the influence of his mentor, Delmore Schwartz, that he met at Syracuse University. Schwartz is sort of a secondary beatnik writer. 
And I think it's important to put Reed in that context of post-Beatnik writing so that it's not just some college kid from Syracuse who out of the blue decided to write songs about heroin. He's, he's following models like William Burroughs and others. Um, talk about that a little bit and how conscious was Lou of how radical what he was trying to do was. Well, Delmore Schwartz was not a post-beat poet. Delmore Schwartz's fame came in the 1940s. He was kind of the American T.S. Eliot. He wrote some really great works, including a book of short stories called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities, which had an enormous influence on Lou. Delmore Schwartz taught English literature at Syracuse University, and Lou took a course with him, particularly also a writing course with him. And Delmore Schwartz became very positive about Lou's talents as a poet. And so he encouraged those talents, and they became actual friends and drinking buddies at Syracuse. So Delmore Schwartz is the first major influence on Lou in relation to lyrics, not in relation to music. Um, And so when Lou approached lyric writing, he was doing it through the scrim of both Schwartz's teaching and also, as you say, the influence of William Burroughs and the other beat writers who wrote more closely to the vein of of loose subject matter, i.e. drugs and mental explorations and so on. Um, So, you know, he brought a very finely honed craft as a poet, which he had developed from working with Delmore Schwartz to the subject matter, to the sort of beat beat subject matter, if you will, of drugs and so on. And before we move on, I, I just want to work in a quick reference to Angus McLeese, the original drummer for the band, and his reasons for leaving the band, which um, are pretty singular and I think are, are unique. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a pivotal moment that I think it's the uniqueness of the Velvet Underground. But to get there, another character pops up, Al Ronowitz, who's most famous to me as the guy who introduced Bob Dylan to the Beatles and triggered the series of events that lead to Bob Dylan getting the Beatles high. Um, but Al Ronowitz was... Uh, hanging out with Robbie Robertson, Bob Dylan's sideman, and saw the Velvets early on and actually booked them a gig at a high school gymnasium. And that was the line that Angus McLeese could not cross. Is that a roughly correct? Yeah, Al Ronowitz was actually a very famous rock, early rock journalist. He wrote a lot, a great deal about music in the New York Post. He also wrote a whole history of the Beat Generation writers. So he was quite a well-established name and a famous name in those days. And it was known as a kind of scene maker. He, he introduced many people to each other, including the Rolling Stones to Andy Warhol and uh, Brian Jones to uh, the Velvet Underground and so on and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, now, Angus, when the, when the band originally started playing, they did have some early gigs playing behind the screens at screenings of underground films in New York, particularly films by Piero Helixa, who was an influential underground filmmaker in those days. And that's when Angus McLeese was playing with them in that kind of experimental New York underground world of the early 60s. Um, so when, when it came to having a, a time you had to start the show and a time you had to stop the show, Angus McLeese objected to this kind of limitation created by a commercial 
venue. You had to play from a certain time to a certain time. His idea was to play whenever he felt like and whenever they wanted to, for as long as they wanted to. So he was a very strict underground man, staying very close to the, rule, the experimental rules of artists in the New York underground. He refused to do a commercial job, which the high school gig was. That's why he left. <laughs> it's just, you know, when I first read this book and the idea of the Velvet Underground playing at a high school gymnasium just absolutely exploded my consciousness. I couldn't fathom that. Now it makes much more sense. Um, and and understanding a bit more about the rock music scene of that era, it was totally common for rock bands to play at high school gymnasiums in the 60s. And tell us about uh, McLeese's replacement, Mo Tucker, and what was so yeah. unique about her as a rock and roll drummer? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Maureen Tucker came to the band because uh, Lou had played with Jim Tucker, her brother, at Syracuse. They knew Maureen through her brother, Jim. And uh, and they knew that Maureen played the drums, and they were kind of in a, in a tight spot to get a drummer quickly to fulfill this, this assignment, this gig. And so they sort of reached out to her, but they were very ambivalent because Kale felt it was a disaster to have a woman in the band. And very few bands had women in them in those days. So, But she was actually ideal for them. Her major influence was Ola Tunji, the African drummer. Um, she played very minimalist drums. Um, one time she played on garbage can. She just played a very simple uh, background beat. But she stuck to it almost like a computer, like a metronome. She stuck to the beat very, very closely. She could not be pulled off it in any direction. And that, that really supplied the center from which all other three members of the Velvets could take off in different directions. So she really turned out to be the ideal drummer for them. And also a very likable person who got along very well with everyone in the band. Yeah, she's just... just absolutely classic and her metronomic drumming style gave them the beat repetition that made their psychedelic explorations so powerful and cohesive in a way things that even you know the 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 who with keith moon or the grateful dead with their two drummers the drummers would come in and out of the beat and try to accentuate the song in a way that mo tucker didn't truck with and that we now know you know whole decades of electronic dance music have shown us that if you have that rep repetitive beat you can you know people will dance through it and listen to almost anything so yeah absolutely critical addition to the band and now we get to andy warhol which for most people in the 60s andy warhol was the only reason they knew anything about the velvet underground tell us a little bit about andy's background where he was in the pop culture when he met the velvet underground and how they worked together yeah, Andy Warhol was the absolute height of his fame in 1965 when he first encountered the Velvet Underground. He had become famous as a pop artist in 1962. He, he'd retired from painting dramatically in Paris in, 19, in, in April of 1965 uh, to dedicate himself to making films. And he started making films actually in 63. So by 65, he was equally well-known as a filmmaker. And film being a bigger field than art in those days, he was actually probably more well-known to the film, albeit underground film, uh, than he was as a painter. He was very famous as a painter. But pop art had kind of just about passing by at that point. 
So the combination of his films and painting have made him extremely famous. Also, he was running the very famous Silver Factory in New York in those days, a place in which he worked, which was totally painted silver. Everything in the room was silver. And this was a famous sort of studio at the time. It being very colorful. He surrounded himself with a bunch of about 14 different people working for him in all sorts of different categories, working on the films, working on the art, working on other projects he did. And so the factory was a very big going concern, well-known to the press. So when Andy Warhol uh, pointed in the direction of the Velvet Underground, he got immediate recognition. As you probably know, the first gig they played with Andy Warhol was the psychiatric psychiatrist convention at the Delmonico Hotel in New York. A very unusual gig for a, a rock and roll band to play. And Andy had been invited to give a speech at the, uh, the dinner for the psychiatrist convention. Andy never gave speeches in his life, so he, he said he wasn't going to give a speech, but he would show some films. And they were satisfied with that. They weren't prepared for what he showed them, which was an early version of what became the exploding plastic and Everloid, essentially uh, this band, the Velvet Underground, playing in front of uh, two screens in which separate films played, and then also uh, lights which were shone over on top of the films, projected on top of the films and the band. And then Gerard Malanga and a partner at that time, Edith Sedgwick, also danced in front of the band. So it was total multimedia. It was extremely loud in this small dining room, essentially, where the dinner was. So it was a very extremely overwhelming experience. And it got covered in the New York Times at quite some length in other publications at the time. So they burst on the scene almost immediately after beginning to work with Andy. Yeah, it made a huge national impression. And let's hear our next song. This is a little snippet from Sister Ray off their second album, White Light, White Heat. And that was Sister Ray from the Velvet Underground, second album, White Light, White Heat. And yeah, I mean, this is just incredibly radical stuff. And and there there had been nothing like this in pop music context before. Nobody had ever been writing songs about, you know, transvestite sailors having an orgy uh, with injectable drugs uh, like this on, on a commercial record album before. So it totally came out of nowhere. The The... Exploding Plastic Inevitable is, you know, 10 to 18 months ahead of anything that was going on in London or San Francisco at the time, just way, way out ahead of the field. And and they quickly then start their residence at the Dom, which was the, the disco, as you said, that Andy Warhol had been approached about finding a band. And this is 
almost the very last moment in history when you would want a band for a disco. Discos are about to just replace bands completely with records. That's what a disco is, a, a discotheque, some list where they play records instead of having a live band. But up to the mid-60s, if you wanted to have dancers, you needed a live band. And it's only in you know, a few places where people are replacing bands with DJs. So this is just this kind of last moment when you would get a live band to do something like this. And the first moment that Andy Warhol or somebody like that would be involved in pretty much, this is the biggest collision of mainstream high culture art and rock music at any point, even to till this day. And, and so it's just got this, massive impact in the 60s and they very quickly go out to los angeles and um perform with another group frank zappa and his mothers of invention how does that go and what's the reaction of the west coast bands to the velvet underground um well you're going straight to the west coast okay uh well if you want to if you want to stop on the way i think, I think it's important to talk about the dawn a little bit because the dawn really established the exploding plastic inevitable. Um, they had done some other gigs before this with Andy, but um, the dorm is where it all came together. Yeah, this happened because uh, Disco Tech, uh, they've been discussing with some producers, fell, they often fell through, they got the one with a different band, the Rascals, as a matter of fact. And so they were left with uh, this sort of uh, gaping hole where they'd been planning to work for Disco. And the same day that the disco deal was canceled for them, they discovered this place on St. Mark's Place called the Dom, which is a, a Polish meeting hall uh, where they had sort of shows and, and various things beforehand. And so within one day, the factory workers transformed this into a rock theater by painting the whole background white and setting up the films and the stage and so on and so on. And from the very first, you know, the, uh, the dorm gigs ran throughout the month of April. And so Andy rented the dorm for the month of April, 1966, and put on uh, 30 nights, uh, sometimes during the day, two of these shows. Uh, and they were extremely successful in the very first night. It became the hip thing in New York to go to. Um, Salvador Dali used to go there almost every night. Uh, all sorts of well-known people showed up there. But mostly it was just a hard, dancing, hard New York crowd, uh, uh, avant-garde crowd, essentially, who loved loved the show. And it was really seen as a Warhol show. What well, The Velvet Underground were very secondary to this because it was called Andy Warhol's... Uh, people went to see a Warhol happening, they thought, not not really... Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground happened to be the heart of it, and it was their music. But the the films and the lights and the dancing and the dancers in front of the band were equally important at that time to the band itself. So by the end of uh, the end of April, they have offers coming in from other places, and they actually uh, had already done some touring in the Midwest, on the East Coast, doing the Exploding Class and Edible at universities and so on. So by the time he went out to California to play a month-long residency at a club called The Strip, they were, they were very well rehearsed and the show was running very well. But opened at The Strip in the beginning of May in LA and uh, it was a sensation. Got an enormous amount of press the next day. People have very mixed reactions. 
Cher said it, was, it would replace nothing but suicide. Other people said they thought it was really great. Uh, but the sheriff closed the club down the next day or the next night. So they never did any more performances there. Closed it down for obscenity. Um, and uh, so they ended up staying in L.A. for the month of, of uh, May in order to collect their fee. They had to stay there. And during that time, they, they, they got the album deal they've been looking for. They've been, they've been doing some recording in New York for the album, the first album. And when they were in L.A., they, they showed it to a producer called Tom Wilson, uh, who at the time was about to start his own record label called Verve at MGM. And he said, wait till I begin my Verve label and I'll take you on. And so they did. So they, so they, they finished recording the album in L.A. in 66 and, and gave the, the, the tapes to Tom Wilson, who put it out in 67. They played with the mom, with the with the uh, Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, both at the trip, and then also secondly in San Francisco. They did a, a gig in Bill Graham's Fillmore West uh, with the, with the uh, Mothers of Invention. The Mothers of Invention played the opening act, and then they really put down. They said, "I don't know how you're going to listen to this next act. They're, 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 they can't play their instruments. They're no good, and so on and so on." They really put them down. And of course, the Velvets blew them off stage, essentially, because their act was much, much stronger than Frank Zappa's mother's invention in those days. There was a lot of conflict on the West Coast. It was really the East Coast clash with the West Coast mentality. The West Coast hippie philosophy is against the hardcore New York, New York underground philosophy. Much more realistic, much more to do with the reality of the times rather than the hippie dreams of the times, but um, it had a strong influence on the Velvets, that, that kind of rejection they experienced on the West Coast toughened them up and made them even more determined to push ahead with their own agenda. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll hear more about the Velvet Underground's agenda. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. And so, yeah, it wasn't just Frank Zappa that was vociferously against the Velvet Underground. The Jefferson Airplane opened up for them at the Fillmore West. And Bill Graham, the um, impresario of the Fillmore, really strongly reacted against the Velvet Underground. And, yeah, it creates this oil and water sensation. But the thing that's fascinating to me now is the other band Tom Wilson signed for his Verve label was Frank Zappa. And... You know, the Zap album actually came out before the Velvet Underground album did. Um, it kind of stole their thunder. And Zappa is also the virtually the only other person working in rock in this period whose avant-garde chops are comparable to John Cale's. Or Yoko Ono is the only other person even peripherally involved with rock and roll, and she's nowhere near the scene at this point um, who's got that kind of resume and so it's just fascinating to me that Zappa and Kale just hated each other so much and <laughs> that, that, you know, in some ways they're similar and they were seen as similar at the time, 
Although by the time I became aware of them, they were seen as such wildly different things. The Velvet Underground scene as the progenitors of punk and new wave, and Zappa is seen as this classic rock jazz fusion guy. But really, they're working very similar fields, such that Tom Wilson thought they would be the perfect pair of bands to start off his new MGM subsidiary, Verb. Um, tell us a little bit about the album and the other character we haven't introduced, Nico. How does Nico get involved in this? I just want to say that uh, there's a great deal of difference between Frank Zappa and uh, John Cale. Frank Zappa oh, of course. never made any music, anything like what John Cale made. No, no, they're very different. I'm just saying that they were both aware oh, of... Oh, God, yes. yes. Yeah, 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 aware of the avant-garde. Yeah. Although I think when, when I looked into it more deeply, they had very different mentors. The, the, the artists that Zappa liked were almost the opposite of what Kale liked. So it's superficially, they had yeah. something in common. And also Zappa was a critic of the hippies, uh, you know, oh, but yeah. through smarmy satire and, and cheap obscenity, rather than the sort of William Burroughs influenced style of Lou Reed. It just, it's just fascinating to me because I don't think of them as being linked, but they absolutely were linked at the time. And, Lou Reed ultimately ended up inducting Zappa into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after 30 years of sniping at each other. When Zappa passed, they patched it all over. Um, yeah. But now tell us about Nico, though. How did how did a European chanteuse get into the Velvet Underground? This is one of the most fascinating stories about the history of the Velvet Underground. It's extraordinary. Uh, when Andy and his partner, Paul Morrissey, became the managers of the band, they were concerned that Lou Reed did not have the charisma of a front man. In those days, he didn't. He wasn't. He was uh, different than he became as a solo performer. He was very kind of, uh, you know, he, he was not really a front man in, in the sense of Mick Jagger or John Lennon or Bob Dylan or something, you know. And so, and also they had this image of like, here's this band all dressed in black. We need to put something white in front of it. And, and Nico happened to have come to the factory just a couple of weeks before this happened. And they just met her and she put out a record in London with Andrew Luke Olden's label, Immediate. He was the Rolling Stones manager. So she was kind of well connected to London pop scene in those days. And um, she could sing, right? And so Andy had this idea, what a fabulous uh, image it would be to have this ice cold uh, blonde chanteuse playing in front of this sort of, sort of like band, which is touching on the kind of material of a German cabaret in the 1920s, the, the cross-dressing, the, the, the obscure subject matter, and so on and so on. So they basically said to uh, John and Lou, who were the leaders of the band, we want, you, we want uh, Nico to sing some songs, not all of them. Of course, they didn't like this idea at all. Uh, it's threatening. It's, it's like asking Mick Jagger to let Marianne Faithful be the lead singer of the Rolling Stones for a few songs. That would never, ever have happened. How did Andy Warhol persuade Lou Reed and John Cale to take on almost a replacement for Lou, as, as, at least as the image of the lead singer? And the answer is because Andy had such incredible power in those days. He, could, he, he had so much charisma himself, and he wrapped you so much in the aura of his world and his belief in you that you would basically do anything he said. You would trust him. 
so they agreed to let Nico sing some songs. And then Andy got Lou to write some songs specifically for Nico, particularly Femme Fatale and All Tomorrow's Parties. He'd already written I'll Be Your Mirror before that. But anyway, so um, so they allowed her to sing these songs. And it worked very well. Um, it was confusing, though, because um, the first pu- the first publications that picked up in the band were Women's Wear, who focused totally on Nico. And so it appeared to the public that Nico was the lead singer of the Velvet Underground for a short period of time before they started seeing them. Anyway, they had a kind of... Um, Lou and Nico had a love affair uh, to begin with, and then she and Kale had an affair later on. So she sort of ingratiated herself into the band to some extent that way. And they did see the positive side of her, her, you know, but when it came to make the album, things became more difficult because Lou didn't really want her to be on the album. And Andy had to persuade him once again to allow her again to sing these these are, I think, three songs she sings on the album. And so it's called The Velvet Underground and Nico. So not Nico is not in the band. She's an adjunct to the band, The Velvet Underground and Nico. And, uh, of course, the first album is unique. It's the only album they made with Nico also singing. And, uh, and the album that, of course, Andy Warhol produced. People laugh at Andy Warhol producing a record because he's not, technically speaking, a producer. We had an enormous amount to do with the sound of that record, both by insisting New could be on it and getting Lou to write particular songs for her, but also being in the studio at the time and having the power with the record company to insist on certain things a first recording band would never have been allowed to do, such as recording at very high decibels and keeping in the dirty language and things like that. No, no first recording band would have been allowed to do those things without Warhol's backing. So I see Lou, I see Andy very much as the producer of the album, who never existed without him. Um, and so, the, yeah, it was made um, it was made very quickly. They had four days of recordings in New York, and I think three days of recordings in LA, and the whole album came together in that time. Apart from the recording of Sunday Morning, which is the first single, which is done later on, and uh, so it was supposed to be a song for Nico, but then Lou insisted on singing it himself. Actually, the first singles to come off the album were both Nico songs, weren't they? Yeah, and it was clearly that was uh, MGM and Tom Wilson's strategy to promote him. But let's yeah. go ahead and hear our next song. And this is the post-John Cale, post-Nico Velvet Underground from their third album, the self-titled Velvet Underground. This is What Goes On. What Goes On from the Velvet Underground self-titled third album after John Cale and Nico had left. And so let's talk about that. They they absorbed Nico into the group, cut her some songs to sing, 
the album is recorded, but then it's delayed for a very long time. And and I I have a bad habit of throwing what ifs at people, but I really feel like if the Velvet Underground and Nico had come out in 1966, it would have had a much much bigger impact than it did coming out just a few minute months later. Do you agree with that? Not really, because the impact would have still been uh, blocked by the subject matter of the songs. No radio is going to play Heroin or Waiting for My Man or Venus and Furs. I mean, the, the great songs in the album. No radio is going. To, no radio did play the Velvet Underground hardly at all when the album came out. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what it made that difference. If it came out in '66. I mean, '67 was a very uh, experimental year for records. Sergeant Pepper came out. Uh, you know, this. You know, so I think that uh, you know. Wouldn't have made that much difference. The reason it didn't come out in '66 was because Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey were not your regular rock and roll managers. They didn't get down the dirt and, and, and drag it through the mud with the record company, insist on various things like Herb Cohen, the manager of, of Frank Zappa, and mothers did. Um, and that's one reason why Lou sought new management after the after the trip to. Um, L.A. in in '66, uh, he started looking around for new management. And D, when they when they signed the record deal, Lou insisted on changing the, the stipulations, the original contract with Warvel, Warvel being the managing company, uh, Morrissey, sorry, Warhol and Morrissey, whereby the money was supposed to go to the company and they would pay the Velvets, and Lou insisted on the money going to the Velvets and they're paying to Warhol. Uh, which which engendered very bad feelings between Warhol and Lou Reed uh, for many many years after that. So there was, was quite quite a serious break there with Warhol happened, and and the departure of Kale and Nico is, is is very unfortunate really because once Kale departed, the original Velvet Underground no longer existed. There's an enormous difference between the first two albums and the second two albums. The second albums are more like Lou Reed with the backing band. Uh, the first two albums are certainly collaborations between Reed and Kale and the musicians and also Nico. Uh, but, um, you know, as, as Lou Reed became, I suppose, once Lou Reed got this, the manager, Steve, Steve Sesnick, to take over the deal um, in, uh, in uh, I think it was in 67, uh, he became much stronger because Sesnick uh, pushed him as the leader of the band and uh, someone who might indeed go solo at some point. He became the controlling factor in the band after Sesnick took over. That led to Kale's Kale's dismissal. And and there's two things about Steve Sesnick I want to get into. One is his club, the Boston Tea Party in Boston. And the other one is his relationship with Brian Epstein. Was there actually talks with Brian Epstein about managing the Velvet Underground? No, uh, apparently... What Epstein was interested in doing was buying the publishing rights to, to, the, to the music. Um, I suppose that at, at that time, they did not have a publishing deal. Or maybe one wanted to buy the publishing rights for the rest of the world outside of the United States. That was the interest. He was never interested in actually managing the band. Although, I mean, there's, there's a conflict there because Sesnick says it was only publishing rights. And Morrison says, no, they had conversations through... Epstein's lawyer, Nat Wise, about management. But I don't think, I, I doubt that, because when they discussed management, when the band discussed management with Sesnick, 
it was between Sesling and a couple other people. Epstein was not in the equation. And Epstein came in in 67 after the release of the album. When he heard the album, he said he wanted to buy the publishing rights. And that never happened because he died shortly after making that uh, offer. Yeah, and, and that, that's another fascinating what if, if the heft of Brian Epstein uh, had been involved, that might have made a big difference. But tell us about the Boston Tea Party and how the Velvets went over without the exploding plastic inevitable in one of these modern rock ballrooms, very comparable uh, to the Fillmore's. Yeah, well, um, at a certain time, uh, quite early on, the Velvets became annoyed the reaction they were getting in New York and decided not to play in New York anymore, which is kind of suicidal for a band, just, just a New York band. Um, and they started basically specializing in playing certain places that they would go back to again and again. And the Boston Tea Party became the first of these places. They found a second home, really, at the Boston Tea Party, obviously because it says next involvement, but also because they were very popular in Boston which was a, a very strong music town in those days, and still is, I think, with, with all the different universities there and the large population of students. It was a very big following for, for modern music, particularly rock music. And uh, they played the Boston Tea Party many, many times. They liked playing there. The acoustics was good. Were good. It was a good, a good size for them, not too big, you know. It filled up pretty much when they came and uh, became their home away from home. Yeah, and, and Cleveland was another big market for them where they they right. uh, built an audience. And, and again, fascinating to me just because coming up when I did, I didn't see the Velvet Underground as part of the 60s rock uh, environment, but they were. They were, you know, playing at the Boston Tea Party, the MC5 open forum there, playing in Cleveland. Um, and talking to music fans I know that were going to live shows in that era, they they were very popular in Texas as well. Um, and so they weren't, they were rejected by the radio and they were rejected by elements of the music, the rock music business, but the audiences were interested. I mean, they were clearly a force. And even after you know uh, they record an, an album for MGM that doesn't come out after they record their second album with Kale, Kale leaves, then they record the third album with the new bass player Doug Ewell, Velvet Underground. Again, no sales on any of that. They record a whole another uh, more than an, another album's worth of material in the '80s. MGM put out two albums, VU and Another View, based on the stuff they recorded in this period. But even at this you know, low point after putting out three dismally selling albums for MGM, Atlantic Records, which is a massively hot album label at this point in time. They've just signed Led Zeppelin. They're about to sign um, the Rolling Stones to the and carry the Rolling Stones record deal. But Steph tells me I need to cue my next song. So let's hear Sweet Jane. And when we come back, you can tell us about Doug Yule and the Atlantic Records period. Okay. Suitcase in my Jackson's closer, Jane is in her vest And me, I'm in a rock and roll band huh. Riding a studs back at Jim You know, those were different times 
hall. All the poets, they studied rules of verse, and those ladies, they rolled their eyes. And that was the Velvet Underground Sweet Jane from the Atlantic Loaded album. And that's the song that goes on to become virtually a national anthem, covered hundreds, literally hundreds of bands. Um, but again, Atlantic can't sell the Velvet Underground any more than anybody else could, in part because Lou Reed quits before the album comes out. Tell us about this last period of the band and who was Doug Yule? What was his role in the band? And how did Sterling and Moe kind of get pushed out of the picture? Right. Well, um, let's see. Uh, Doug Yule, of course, replaced Hale in 1968. And Doug Yule had been in a fairly popular Boston band. So Sesnick knew him. He guess he played at the Boston Tea Party and so forth. He looked a little bit like Lou. Uh, he basically became a clone of Lou's. Doug Yule was a very pleasant guy, quite a talented musician, a good singer, but not with a strong personality of his own. And this was very useful to Lou, who basically didn't want another strong personality in the band, but wanted someone who would do what he was told to do. And Doug followed Lou's uh, directions very, very well, maybe even too well, because at the end he sort of almost took over from Lou. But, um, you know, without Lou pushing him to do what he was doing, because he would have been nothing special. But Doug, Doug became more central in the band because he actually sang some of the songs on both the last, the last two albums. Uh, to some extent, that was because during the making of the third album, they were touring the West Coast, and Lou's voice was a little ragged from touring and recording at the same time. So... He had Doug sing, and you, you can't really tell when you first hear it, you, you think it's Lou, but it's actually Doug. He has a slightly softer voice, but very similar tone and pitch. Um, and so, you know, uh, Doug is, is, is a good replacement. He was, he was popular with Mer, uh, Sterling and Moe, who obviously were upset about Kale leaving, but the reality was they wanted to continue with the band with Lou. So they accepted Doug. Uh, Moe's main concern about Doug was that Lou would blow up his head too much because Lou tends to get very overly enthusiastic very quickly about people and put them on pedestals, which he later knocks them off. He did this with Doug. He put him on a pedestal. You're so great. You're so credible. You're so talented. So on. And Doug got a big head. And, and, and as, uh, as, as, as the third album, even though it was a lot, more radio friendly, a lot less difficult to listen to than the first two albums, still made very little headway on the radio or, or in sales. Lou became increasingly frustrated and, and less and less sure of Cessnick's directions. And by the time they came around to recording Loaded in 1969, that relationship was really beginning to crack, at which point uh, uh, Sesnit became a stronger player in the band than even Lou. Sesnit, who was a manipulator par excellence, manipulated uh, Yule into a stronger and stronger position in the band, singing more of the songs and so on and so on. You know, so in in the in the actual uh, release of the Loaded album, on the back cover. 
was a photograph of the band in the studio, which was simply a photograph of Doug Yule alone in the studio, suggesting he made most of the album, which of course is not true at all. Uh, the very sad thing about Loaded is that, uh, of course, these are some of Lou's most popular songs, most long-lasting songs. He did not get to sequence the album, and Lou, to Lou's sequencing was very, very vital to the success of an album. Because he uh, was at loggerheads with Sesnick and threatening to leave the band at the time, uh, he lost he lost that control. The sequencing was done without him. And, uh, and also... The songwriting was credited to all members of the band, though Lou wrote all the songs on his own. Um, and so, you know, there was a good deal of a kerfuffle there, and, and Lou actually had to sue to get his songwriting credits back, and, and so on. And I think that the release of Loaded was odd because the cover was so bizarre. The cover was a drawing of the entrance to a New York subway, which seemed like very unappealing uh, when you had the Velvet Underground, a very colorful-looking band, to photograph. Uh, and uh, they used this odd cover of a subway entrance. Um, and uh, and then the album was not that strongly promoted. Uh, I don't know to what extent Lou's leaving the band had to do that, because the album came out in 69, and Lou didn't leave the band until um, September of 1970, when they played it. I think it was September, the summer of 1970, and they played that week-long residency at Max's Kansas City, um, the last last uh, hurrah of Underground. And, uh, and the, the live album that came out of that, the Velvet's Live at Max's, was recorded then. Um, you, if you listen to that album, the Velvet recorded live at Max's, you can see that Lou's still in, in, in good strength as a singer. He's still got a very strong voice, and he's still singing beautifully. And uh, but Mo is no longer drumming because she had to take time off because she was pregnant during the sessions for the uh, Max's Kansas City concerts, and she was replaced by Willie Alexander, and his brother uh, I think Dave Alexander I think played the bass, and so the band was really fractured at that point. I don't think it's true to say that Sterling and Mo were pushed into the background. It's true that they. They had less and less power in making sort of final decisions, um, and 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 you always promoted over them. But I mean, uh, and 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 also Sterling's collaboration with Lou became weaker after Kale left because uh, Sterling's resentment against Lou for dismissing Kale was an enormous resentment, and it took it. Took, he never really got over it. And so his involvement was not anything like as as, as wholehearted as it had been on, on the first two albums. Um, you know, I, I, in a way, they went out in a blaze of glory because Loaded is, I think, was, I think, their best-selling album. It still sold more on Atlantic, I think, than the other albums at that time. This point in time, it's hard to know because so many years have passed and so many sales have happened to those various albums. But... Um, it was, you know, it was had a lot of great music on it. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, I think, the best-selling album of the original period. And so, this is an impossible question, and you don't <laughs> like. Uh, we have no time left. How did the Velvet Underground go from being this total failure commercially to being a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted band? Like, two quick bullet points. What do you think were the key moments that 
allowed the Velvets to take their rightful place in the pantheon of rock and roll bands. Well, I think the key moments are 1983 when they played, when they first played together, the Andy Wall Exposé in France. The first time they played, the four of them played together, was that, and out of that particular playing of heroin at that, that Andy Warhol show uh, came the Velvet Underground reunion. So the, the fact the Velvet Underground reunited and toured Europe in uh, 95, I think, uh, was had a lot to do, of course, with their with their uh, rebirth of interest in the band. My book coming out in '83 also played a strong role, uh, but but also you have, of course, punk rock has sort of come and gone at this point. Punk exploded internationally in 1977, hit its peak in sort of '79, and began to fade in the early '80s. But punk had a lasting influence. And during the, the rise of punk, Lou Reed, in his solo career, was very much recognized as the godfather of punk. And one thing to understand about Lou Reed's solo career is he played a lot of Velvet Underground music in his solo career, particularly in his solo concerts, particularly on a couple of live albums he put out. He played um, half the album was, was, was uh, Velvet Underground songs. So he made a point of keeping the Velvet's music alive through his solo shows, but also in talking about them. So the combination really of Lou Reed pushing them and the Velvet Underground reunion obviously led to the rebirth of the band, rebirth of interest. But I, I think every single punk band was influenced by Lou, by Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground equally. Yeah, absolutely. That was the cliche that only 20,000 people saw them live or bought their records, but they all formed bands. Yes. (laughs) Well, my guest has been Victor Bacris. The book is Uptight, the Velvet Underground story that he co-wrote with Gerard Malanga. And Victor, this has been absolutely great. Thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on to maybe talk about your book about Lou Reed Solo or Keith Richards or Patti Smith, if you're interested. I'd be interested very much to talk about my Keith Richards book, yeah. Uh, Awesome. Well, I'll be in touch and we'll make that happen. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Okay. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back Kit McIntosh to discuss Vibes Cartel the imprisoned king of bashment and pioneer of auto-tune psychedelia. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 